You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. society increasingly dependent on technology, both as essential elements of how we live our own lives, computers, travel, that kind of thing, but also the things that we have in our homes to make our lives easier. If you look back at 50s science fiction, even back then there were many, many stories about technology taking over machines in our homes that are there to look after us, turning against us. So the move towards our dependence on technology was foreseen far, far into the future by the fiction writers of the day. And it's been quite a rich topic to be mined. Rod Serling's inspiration for tonight's episode came from a household mishap. And he says, This one I got from trying to shave with a razor during a given morning when three appliances in my house gave out. A washer, a dryer, and a television set. It occurred to me how absolutely vulnerable we are to gadgets, gimmicks, and electronic gym crackery. Then, the progression took on the form of a story involving a man, whose appliances became entities, and instead of just stopping on him, they went the full route, and actually remonstrated against him. So it is quite a rich topic, to be mined, and in true rod-sailing fashion. It's probably even more relevant today than it was then. But does the show really make the most of it? Rod-sailing doesn't think so, because he closed that statement with, unfortunately, the show did not live up to its potential. So do we agree? Let's take a look at a thing about machines. All right. That will be enough of that. Do you hear me? I said that will be enough of that. Stop! Stop! This is Mr. Bartlett Finchley, age 48 a practicing sophisticate who writes very special and very precious things for gourmet magazines and the like. He's a bachelor and a recluse with few friends, only devotees and adherents to the cause of tart sophistry. He has no interest, save whatever current annoyances he can put his mind to. He has no purpose to his life except the formulation of day-to-day -day opportunities to vent his wrath on mechanical contrivances of an age he abhors. In short, Mr. Bartlett Finchley is a malcontent born either too late or too early in the century, and who in just a moment will enter a realm where muscles and the will to fight back are not limited to human beings. Next stop for Mr. Bartlett Finchley, The Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 28th of October 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by David Oric McDemon. We've already met David McDemon in The Twilight Zone. He directed probably the most violent episode we've seen to date, Execution, where the cowboy is brought forward in time 
using a time machine. And we'll see him again when he directs the episode back there. So two very tonally different Twilight Zones with execution and a thing about machines. Looking down his resume, McDermott wasn't a particularly prolific director like most we come across, but he did tend to go to shows like Lux Video Theatre or Peter Gunn and do a few episodes of it rather than just one or two and then moving on. So back to the episode. A nice opening narration sailing appearance here where he appears on the television set in Finchley's house, imaginatively done and fitting in with what the episode is about, so it ticks all the boxes for me in that respect. The opening narration doesn't actually come in until we've had almost five minutes of a scene with the main character, Bartler Finchley, speaking with a television repairman. That repairman is played by Barney Phillips in his second of four Twilight Zone appearances, the first being the war episode The Purple Testament, which we've already discussed. And the most famous probably being Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. He's quite a warm presence on screen. He has a very unique face and quite a, a friendly voice. So even when he's telling Bartler Finchley what he thinks of him, it's not really done with any venom. Now this scene tells us all we need to know about Bartler Finchley. Quite simply, he hates machines. And there's really not much more to it than that. Now the name Bartlett Finchley was a combination of two names from other rod sailing pieces. Bartlett is from an unsold script called The Beloved Outcast, which featured a character very similar to this one, very heartless, very cold. And Finchley was from a script that was written for radio called Mr. Finchley vs. The Bomb. It was written for a radio series called It Happens To You, but it never actually got made, so Rod Serling rejigged it for television. It was made in 1952 on the Lux Video Theatre programme. Now Martin Grams Jr. synopsizes the story in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and this is what he says, Jason W. Finchley is an old man who resides in a ramshackle old house with a battered porch in a section of the desert recently designated as a testing ground for US Army bombs. General Millet, in charge of the program, finds the test inconveniently postponed for a time, when his orders to remove all residents is defied. Mr Finchley finds comfort in his rocking chair whistling and whittling away. Eddie Sloan, a female reporter, becomes involved with the story and helps support the old man, as Millet, on orders from the higher-ups, attempts to evict the old man to a safer area. Millet, however, finds himself against the old man and his league of ever-growing supporters, the US Army. So we'll leave that there because in terms of having anything to do with this episode, it really is just that name. As you can hear from that synopsis, there's really nothing else that ties the two together. Supposing we stop this moronic small talk, shall we? And get down to some serious larceny? You may read me off the damages. Although I sometimes wonder, what exactly is the purpose of the Better Business Bureau when it allows itinerant extortionists like you to come back week after week, move wires around, busily probe with ham-like hands, and achieve nothing but the financial ruin of every customer? We're not a jip outfit, Mr. Finchley. We're legitimate repairmen. But I'll tell you something about yourself. 
That TV set doesn't work because obviously you got in the back of it and you ain't got a lot of wires and I don't know what else. Now, a month ago, you called me over here to fix your portable radio because you threw it downstairs. That did not work properly either. Well, that's the point, Mr. Finchley. Why don't they work properly? Offhand, I'd say it's because you don't treat them properly. <laughs> I assume there'll be an extra charge for that analysis. What does go wrong with these things, Mr. Finchley? Have you got any idea? Aside from being a rather incompetent clod, you're a very unreceptive man. Now, we next see Bartlett Finchley talking to his secretary, Edith Rogers. She is played by Barbara Stewart and, as has often been said, very prolific actress who worked all through her life and you can see her in small parts in 80s comedies like Airplane and Bachelor Party and she was in the TV show Huff as late as 2005 she passed away in 2011 now the thing about Bartler Finchley is that as we've already seen machines aren't the only thing that he has no skill at dealing with he's also terrible with people Miss Rogers, well, is this all you've done? That's all I've done. That's 30 pages in three hours and a half. That's the best I can do, Mr. Finchley. It's that idiotic machine, that typewriter of yours. Thomas Jefferson wrote the entire Declaration of Independence with a feather quill, and it took him only half a day. Why don't you hire Mr. Jefferson? Miss Rogers, did I ever tell you with what degree of distaste I view insubordination? Often and endlessly. I'll tell you what, Mr. Finchley. You get yourself another girl. So we have this scene where Finchley is very snarky at Edith and she walks out, but then he has this about turn out of nowhere where he is all of a sudden asking her to have dinner with him. And when she refuses, he says that he doesn't want to be alone. It feels very disjointed, and I get that perhaps Rod Sailing wanted to show that Finchley wasn't just a one-dimensional, almost pantomime character. But the shift is so quick that you almost get whiplash. I'm desperately tired. I haven't slept for four nights. Quite frankly, the thought of being alone just now is intolerable, Miss Rogers. Things have been happening. Very odd things. Go on. That television machine in there. It goes on late at night and wakes me up. It just goes on all by itself. That radio I kept in the bedroom, that went on and off too, just when I was going to sleep. There's a conspiracy in this house, Miss Rogers. Conspiracy? That's exactly what it is, a conspiracy. The television set, the radio, the clock, even that miserable car I drive. Last night, I drove it into the driveway. Just drove it into the driveway, mind you. Very carefully, very slowly. The steering wheel turned in my hand. It twisted itself in my hand. The car deliberately hit the side of the garage. It smashed a headlight. Cost $140. That clock over the mantelpiece. I threw it away. What I'm getting at, Miss Rogers, is that for as long as I have lived, I have never been able to operate machines. For as long as I've lived, I've never been able to operate machines. Not one of Rod Serling's best lines and difficult for any actor, no matter how good, to deliver 
And that sounds that little bit silly. Because we as the audience hear that and we say, well don't use them then. And the scene goes on where Finchley gets more and more animated and angry about his hatred of machines. I suppose if there's anything of interest here, it's that in his conversations with Edith, the seeds are planted that what comes later may just be a delusion caused by a lack of sleep or some sort of nervous breakdown on Finchley's part. And the moment that Edith leaves, probably the closest thing to a friend he has, the typewriter comes to life and writes, Get out of here, Finchley. So when she leaves, is that when the machines conspire against him, or is that when his delusions start? Get out of here, and so the television joins in with this uh, chorus of machines against Finchley. Now the following scene is Bartlett Finchley calling up women who he knows to try and get them to dine with him that night. He's very pleasant with these women, and these, I imagine, are like Finchley, people of great means, people with money, socialites. So we notice the contrast in how Finchley speaks to these people, who he would consider to be in his own class, to how he speaks to the working classes, his assistant, the television repairman. They, like the machines, only get scorn from Finchley, but not the socialites. And we'll put a pin in that thought, but we'll keep that for later. Mrs. Donnelly, please. Oh, Pauline, is this you? And how is my favorite attractive young widow? Bartlett. Bartlett Finchley. Yes, I was just wondering if... Oh. Oh, I see. Well, I'm delighted. I'm simply delighted. I'll send you a wedding present. Of course. Good night. Telephones. Just like the rest. Exactly like all the rest. A whole existence dedicated to embarrassing me. Or irritating me. Or making my life miserable. Well, who needs you? Who needs any of you? Now the action starts. This is when the machines really begin to turn on him. He goes to have a shave with his electric razor and all of a sudden it starts to float menacingly in front of him and the phone keeps repeating, get out of here Finchley. She rolled down the driveway, almost hit a kid on a bike. You ought to check that emergency brake, mister. The emergency brake was on. Oh, no, it wasn't. Or if it was, it isn't working properly. She rolled down the driveway and right out into the street. You're lucky it didn't hit anyone. Monster. You got the keys? Yes. Oh, they're in the house. Well, you better pull it back up into the garage. And you ought to check that emergency brake the first chance you get. Understand, mister? All right, dear friends. You may remain on my property, goggling at this astonishing sight, for another three and a half minutes. If, when I return with my car keys, you are not off my property, I shall enlist the aid of this uh, underpaid gendarme to forcibly eject you. So again, Finchley has this attitude, this disdain for the working classes, the cop, the normal people passing by. 
when his car rolls to the bottom of the hill and almost hits a kid, there's nothing in the way of concern or apology. He just goes into the house and he gets drunk. So before we get to the finale, let's meet our leading man, Richard Hayden, who plays Bartler Finchley. If you know him from nothing else, I imagine most will know him from probably his most famous role in The Sound of Music. There are some other notable credits, Mutiny on the Bounty, Young Frankenstein among them. He did specialise in this kind of uppity, snobbish British persona that he has here. I guess that's just the way he was made. But is he any good in this? I think it's hard to divorce his performance from what he is expected to say and do in this episode. He is thoroughly unlikable. We never have any sympathy for him, even in the moment earlier when he asks not to be alone. So can anyone really sell these lines, this ridiculous premise? I'm not sure they can. So I guess we have to ask, does he succeed in bringing what is a repellent man on the page to the screen and making him just as repellent? Well, sure he does, but it's a pretty thankless task, so I can't be too hard on him. He is an actor from a different time with a different kind of presence, more theatrical than naturalistic. And there is a place for that sometimes, that bigger performance, and you could say that this warrants it because for a lot of the time he is alone on screen, apart from the crazy machine, so he needs to be doing something. But it's hard to really separate out what doesn't work in this episode without just writing it off as a bad lot. So Finchley polishes off a whole bottle of liquor and then this chorus of machines begin taunting him. There's a fun little shot of an electric razor chasing him down the stairs and when he runs out of the house the car turns itself on and begins to chase him. So credit where it's due, it's put together quite well this scene, there's a lot of menace there when the car does its thing and it does appear to be driving at speed after him. There's a nice crash through a fence into some conveniently stacked cardboard boxes and the chase continues until Finchley ends up in the pool. You pulled the body out? Yeah. That's funny, they usually float. What do you mean, usually? Well, he was on the bottom, he hadn't come up. He wasn't weighted either, there was nothing to hold him down. Huh. His eyes were open, he looked scared, like something had been chasing him or something. The neighbors said that he'd been shouting and running around last night. I wonder what it was that could have scared him. Whatever it was, it's a little item he took along with him. Yeah. Maybe he was drunk, imagining things. Maybe. Could be he had a heart attack or something. Could be. It could just be. In Rod Serling's original script, Finchley wasn't to end up at the bottom of the pool. It finished with, after the car chase, the next morning Finchley is laid dead in front of his garage doors. The police officer says that he was found in the garage in front of his car, slumped against the wall as if he'd seen a ghost, or as if a ghost were chasing him. It was the director, McDermott, who changed it to the pool idea, 
although it's not exactly clear from what's on screen and a lot of people miss that the reason he doesn't float is that the car was supposed to have ended up on top of him in the pool. So Finchley ends up dead, but where do we end up? I think it's quite clear that I don't think much of this episode. Finchley is a repelling character, which is fine, that's what's needed sometimes, but there has to be something to latch onto. I don't mind not liking a character as a person, as long as I find them interesting or something. Something that keeps me watching. But there's none of that here, he's just a nasty, snobbish man. And what's the episode all about anyway? There is potential with stories about machines taking over, or how we depend on technology too much. But like Rod Serling said, this story doesn't really fulfil that potential. As I said earlier, when Finchley says he doesn't like machines, we, the audience, say, well don't use them then. He doesn't look like the kind of man to watch TV or listen to the radio. He keeps smashing them to pieces. The problem is, Finchley is a rich man. He wouldn't use washing machines, he wouldn't use dryers. I doubt he'd even use an oven. He'd pay people to do the laundry. And he probably eats at restaurants. So what we're left with is radios and televisions, which like I said, I doubt he uses. Electric razors. We'll get a razor blade instead. And the distinction as to what actually constitutes a machine in a technological sense is quite poorly defined. I think, you know, clocks and telephones, even the biggest technophobes in the world can use a clock or one of those old-fashioned telephones. So I don't see the message here because it's clearly not what Rod Serling talked about when I quoted him at the start of the show. How we rely on machines so much because the main character, Finchley, doesn't rely on machines so much. I guess the best I can come up with as to what it's all about is maybe it's a class thing. Finchley is well-mannered to his society friends, but wretched to the working people, his assistant, the TV repairman, the cop. He speaks to them like he speaks to the machines with disdain. So is this about how the rich view the working classes? Just machines there to be used as they see fit or abused? Are the machines rising up symbolic of the working classes rising up against the elite? It's certainly something that's very relevant today and it seems to fit more than a message about dependence on technology but I'm not sure whether I'm giving the episode too much credit because the research just doesn't seem to suggest that that's what it was all about. I think I said in the season 1 retrospective that Luke and I did that I hated this episode. I think that's probably too strong a word. I don't think there's room for hate in the Twilight Zone. Even the poorer episodes are well-intentioned, but I certainly don't like it. And of all of the episodes that I've covered so far, I would rank it close to, if not at the bottom of the list. So we'll leave the final word on this episode with Rod Serling himself because in 1960 he wrote a letter to a gentleman called Owen Kimura who was from an advertising agency involved with the show. And in the letter he wrote, 
Mr. Finchley drowned in his swimming pool. I wish I had before I wrote the bloody thing. Yes, it could just be. It could just be that Mr. Bartlett Finchley succumbed from a heart attack and a set of delusions. It could just be that he was tormented by an imagination as sharp as his wit and as pointed as his dislikes. But as perceived by those attending, this is one explanation that has left the premises with the deceased. Look for it filed under M for machines in the Twilight Zone. Now let's listen to some listener feedback in Submitted for Your Approval. A new friend of the show, Gus, has sent us some feedback, so let's have a listen. Hello, Tom. It's great to have you back hosting the podcast. Um, Luke did an absolutely bang-up job and filled your shoes admirably, but you've definitely been missed. I really enjoyed listening to your comments about Nervous Man in a $4 room on last week's show. Um, This episode's always been a favorite of mine, largely because of the sheer brilliance of Serling's dialogue as delivered by the imitable Joe Mantell. Um, And while I agree that William Gordon, who played George, is somewhat hard to buy as a crime boss, he definitely has his moments, particularly when he's listening to Jackie ramble on about his concerns over the upcoming job. All the while, George just openly giggles straight to Jackie's face, utterly amused by this little man who he finds as worthless and unsympathetic as some character on a TV sitcom. That touch alone always makes me grin sadistically when I rewatch this one and I think William Gordon did a great job with that but what I love about your podcast is how it inspires me to go back and rewatch the episodes after listening to your commentary and when I do this I always somehow feel like I'm seeing them in a different light which is wonderful Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room has the distinction of often being compared with the fifth season installment of the Twilight Zone Last Night of a Jockey of the two It also has a distinction of generally being considered the superior episode. But as much as I love Nervous Man, after seeing Mickey Rooney and Serling's uh, Playhouse 90 production of The Comedian, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for him, and I've always considered Last Night of a Jockey to be equally uh, great an episode of the show. So, when I sat down to watch Nervous Man again, I decided to pair it up with Last Night of a Jockey just to see how they held up back to back. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever actually watched them together. And I am sad to say that side by side, (laughs) I have to agree with the consensus that Nervous Man is by far the better play. That's not to say that Jockey is bad at all, but as brilliant as Mickey Rooney may have been, there's just something about the combination of Joe Mantell as Jackie, Serling's pristine, punchy dialogue, the score by Jerry Goldsmith, and Douglas Hayes' direction that just, it sets it a notch above, in my revised opinion anyway. So, with that, I will take my leave, but uh, thanks again, Tom. It's really good to have you back, and I'm sure I speak for many fans when I say we'll be there with you till the end, however long it takes. Cheers from across the pond, mate. Gus, thank you for the welcome back. It's good to be back, and uh, thank you to you and everyone else who has sent me emails. There's been a lot of, uh, of welcome emails, and I'm quite humbled and very appreciative of all those messages. 
So Gus makes uh, a comparison with Last Night of the Jockey, I have to admit. Because I don't really watch ahead in the Twilight Zone, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but I have heard that comparison. It's unfortunate that it doesn't match up to Nervous Man in a $4 room. What I will say is, listening back to that last episode, I'm not sure I really sold how much I actually really do like it. It's uh, Maybe I was just a little shell-shocked to be back in the Twilight Zone myself, but it is really a, an episode that I hold in quite high regard, like Gus. It hasn't really broke into pop culture like some of the most uh, popular Twilight Zone episodes, but I think it can hold its head up high with, you know, some of the greats. So... I, I do think it is a really good episode. And it's interesting you, you say that, Gus, and make that comparison between the two because it's not unusual for Rod Serling to revisit stories like this and do them again, just rejigged slightly differently. We kind of see it quite a lot. There's, a, there's even Night Gallery episodes that are very reminiscent of Twilight Zone episodes. So there's always going to be one that's uh, better, but uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye out. For the future and see if any more of those come up so thank you gus i appreciate it and if like him you want to send us some feedback then you can email me at tom at the twilight zone network.com now before i go a little note about the website some of you might have seen that the website the twilight zone network is no more there's a couple of reasons for that basically i was when i set up that website my intention was that it was going to be the Twilight Zone fan website that the internet is kind of missing. The one that, you know, had the podcast on it. Chris had the Night Gallery podcast on it. I was going to review the Twilight Zone books. I was going to review all the other Twilight Zone connected material. I was hoping to get other people involved to contribute to that. But if I can't get the Twilight Zone podcast out, then because of time then I can't exactly do all those other things because of time either so it never really took off so in the end it was kind of a little stagnant I found that the Night Gallery podcast had finished and it was just these occasional Twilight Zone podcasts going on it so websites kind of take on an energy sometimes and I think that energy is as a result of what gets put up there uh, the people who interact with it that sort of thing so it was really just a very static website in terms of what was going on now when i wasn't presenting the twilight zone podcast and luke was doing it i started to do a different podcast with my friend uh, chris now that was back to my kind of horror podcasting uh, days and it's called the strange and deadly show it's available on itunes it is rather different in tone from the Twilight Zone podcast. It's talking about horror films that back in the 80s were put on a Section 3 Video Nasties list. So they weren't actually classed as Video Nasties, but they would often be seized by the police and destroyed, that sort of thing. And there's 82 of those films, so we review them on that podcast. It's a bit more fast-moving than the Twilight Zone podcast. Chris brings a lot of energy to it. But I will warn you, I'm very much of the mind that for a family show like The Twilight Zone, The Twilight Zone podcast shouldn't have any swearing in it, that sort of thing. But these films are obviously horror films. They're more adult, so there is 
you know, a little bit of language and so on used in the show, mainly from Chris, that's his thing, but but it's it's a fun show to do and it was very easy, very it was very easy, not very time uh intensive like the Twilight Zone podcast is. So it was a, a good fun podcast to do without having too much work involved in it. To house that podcast, I set up a website called Gentleman's Grindhouse Records. Now, it also includes my very old podcast, The Gentleman's Grindhouse, from years ago now, just as a little sort of curio for anyone who still wants to listen to it. And it just seemed silly to have this one website, Gentleman's Grindhouse Records, where there was things going on, and the Twilight Zone website where it was just an occasional Twilight Zone podcast. So I thought, let's bring them all back under the one roof. And as Gentleman's Grindhouse Records is the one with all the stuff going on, we'll put it there. Now, all the old website addresses will still work. The twilightzonenetwork.com will still get you to Gentleman's Grand House Records, where the Twilight Zone podcast is. Now, my partner in crime, Dark Inc. One, the artist, web designer, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of guy, has worked really hard on the website, and it looks fantastic. You can just go there and listen to a multitude of different things and there's more coming to it you know he's very much a an equal partner in this thing and he has done a lot of work on it and there's going to be different types of things going on down the line there's going to be things like a shop merchandise that kind of thing i'm not going to be hawking products at you every time i do a twilight zone podcast but at the end of the day web space costs money uh, putting the podcast together costs money and we would like it to maybe pay for itself by, you know, putting out a couple of things in the shop. But that's down the line. If you just want to listen to this podcast, it's still free. It's always going to be the case. So, you know, that's there for you anyway. So that's the explanation as to the website. So check it out, gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com. You can get to it by any link. Uh, any web address you have previously used will get you there. And uh, I hope you like it. So... We're coming up to a nice little run on the Twilight Zone podcast. Next three episodes I'm really looking forward to. And the next one is the Charles Beaumont story, The Howling Man. Sometimes considered one of the best Twilight Zones, but it's also one that people can pick a lot of holes in too. So how's it going to fare on this rewatch? I'm going to be really interested to find out. And I hope you will join me and send any feedback if you want to put your uh, two pence or two cents worth in. So that's all for now, and I will see you next time in the Twilight Zone.